Hey, and welcome to the FBC Rungi Podcast. We believe it is our mission to take root in the Lord, grow in our relationship with Him and others, and bear fruit for Him by making disciples who make disciples. We strongly hope that this message will be an encouragement to you, and that it in no way teaches you to trust in your own ability to please God. God is already pleased with you if you are in Christ. So, we invite you to not only join along with us by studying Scripture from wherever you might be, but to develop the habit of studying His Word and fellowshipping with other believers. Today we're going to study the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. So go grab a Bible and join with us in the message, which is entitled, Only Human, God to Man, Part 4. First of all, I just want to say that I uh, like to apologize in advance. I am extremely congested, so I probably don't sound like myself. Um, I've been battling allergies. Uh, but then again, you know, I'm a human being and I can get sick too, right? Well, that's actually what I want to talk about. Do you ever catch yourself making excuses when things don't go your way? I think we all know the deadly nature of sin, but we often fail to recognize the deadly sidekicks of sin, which are blame and excuse. So we can blame other people who are around whom we feel are responsible for the decisions that we made. We make excuses, however, when we seem to be all alone and there's nobody to blame, and we still don't want to take responsibility. Blame and excuse are invented reasons that we create to defend our behavior and, and maybe even to postpone taking any kind of responsibility, if at all. You know, I don't ever want to take responsibility for it. Now, we see an example of blame in the Garden of Eden when God confronts Adam and Eve in their sin. He, he asks them, you know, why did you taste the forbidden fruit? You know, I, I told you not to do it. And Adam, of course, blames Eve and God, saying the woman you put me here with led me to disobey. Eve pretty much does the same thing, except for she blames the serpent and God. She says, God, if you hadn't left this with the serpent, you know, I wouldn't have done what I did. You know, that the serpent deceived me. And the serpent, well, he didn't have a leg to stand on. It's easy to see how others should take responsibility for their own actions. So when we read this story about Adam and Eve, we're like, why, guys, guys, why can't you just accept responsibility for what you did and stop blaming other people? You know, we, we need to stop the blame and excuse game. But you see, it's much more difficult when that person that needs to take responsibility is us. It reminds me of a story John Orberg tells uh, about the mob couch in his living room. He said that he and his wife once sold their Volkswagen Beetle and used the money to purchase a new couch. And the salesman tried to tell him, listen, if you have kids, you really need a couch that is dirt colored. But his, refi- his wife refused to accept that. I mean, she wanted a mauve couch. She just loved the color. And despite the salesman's protest about how it would be more difficult to clean and it's impossible to keep a, a couch spotless unless you get a plastic cover. And she didn't want a plastic cover. I don't want that. She decided that this was the couch she wanted and that she was determined to make sure that it stayed clean. And so when they got home, they lined up all of her children and she told her six-year-old, her four-year-old, and even her six-month-old uh, the couch. You know, she, told them, she showed them the couch and she, she issued out the couch rules. Do not sit on this couch. Do not touch this couch. Do not look at this couch. Do not walk past this couch. Do not think about this couch. Of all the other furniture in the house, you may freely sit. But the mob couch, you must not sit. For the moment you sit upon it, you shall surely die. Well, even explaining the rules about a week later, John says his wife walks past the couch and she sees that there's a strawberry jam stain on her couch and she was livid. She lined up all the children again and she showed them the stain. Look at it! 
and she demanded that they confess which one of them did it. Now John says the oldest was the first to eventually break and start crying. And of course she blamed the middle child, and the middle child blamed the baby, but nobody wanted to accept responsibility for this. John said that he had never seen his wife so angry before. And so she stood there in silence, waiting for them to confess for the longest time. But John knew that none of them were going to confess for two reasons. Number one, uh, they knew that their mother was so angry that if they were to confess to sustaining the couch, he would, they would spend uh, an eternity in the timeout chair. And he also knew that they would never confess because it was actually him who stained the couch and he wasn't saying nothing. You see, we look for opportunities to escape our mistakes, and it seems at times that blame and excuses are, are the way to go. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. I didn't mean to. You know, it, it just came out of nowhere. I didn't see it. You know, the sun was in my eyes. You would have done it too. Or, you know, everyone's doing it, or even this one. This is kind of like the granddaddy of all of them. After all, I'm only human. But you see, these are just creative ways to escape the responsibility of our actions. Blaming others and making excuses are dangerous because they mask our lack of repentance. You know, we're not truly sorry for doing what we've done. And the truth is that the root of excuse and blame is fear. We don't come forward because we're afraid. We're afraid of punishment or we're afraid of failure or we're afraid of the consequences or we're afraid of embarrassment or we're afraid of change or we're even afraid of uncertainty that it brings. You know, coming forward and accepting responsibility, it's going to change everything. And I just don't know what's going to happen. And because of that fear, we shirk responsibility by blaming others and excusing ourselves. And while that might seem to be a temporary fix for our situation, what we don't realize is that it comes with some pretty disastrous consequences. You see, when we blame others and make excuses for ourselves, what we actually do uh, is we, we push some long-term situations upon ourselves that we are not prepared to deal with. Uh, for example... Um, when we blame and make excuses, sure, we get to avoid responsibility, but because we're avoiding that responsibility and God gave man responsibility over all creation, we actually avoid growing. And we, we can't grow when we're making excuses and blaming someone else. We develop many limiting beliefs about ourselves and even about God. We say things like, I'm not fast enough, I'm not smart enough, or strong enough, or young enough, or old enough, or skinny enough, or rich enough, I'm not talented enough. But what we're really saying is that, God, you're not all those things to be able to do that through me. And this leads to a lifestyle of never-ending regrets. You know, all these what-if scenarios, I wish I had done that better, but you know, I'm only human. And when we blame and excuse, we are let down a path of pessimism where everything in our lives is negative. And we begin to, to, to believe that, that not only that you know everybody is out to get me, and I'm not just the offender, I'm the victim here. And see, our comfort zones begin to shrink because of the fear of making another mistake. I, I, I don't want to do that again, and so we avoid risk-taking. And, and what good ever came from avoiding the risk? You know, uh, with, with great risk comes great reward. But worst of all, worst of all, all the consequences that we deal with 
The worst part is we cannot benefit from serving God. See, God in Scripture, he refuses to bless and use prideful, unrepentant hearts. And if we're not serving God, then, then what is the purpose of living on planet Earth? See, blaming excuse, they give us permission to settle for less than God's best for us. So when we live a life of blaming others and excusing ourselves, listen, we are literally wasting our time because we're not becoming the people that God created us to become. We make excuses and blame others because we don't see an alternative for escaping our shame. But thankfully, God gave us a better way. As we've been studying the book of Hebrews, we see in chapter 2 four reasons why God became man. Uh, we know why man wants to be God, but why would God ever want to become man? Well, so far we've studied the first three reasons why God became man. God became man to reestablish the authority over creation that mankind lost when they sinned. God became man to reunite the family of God. God became man to render powerless Satan and the fear of death. And today we're going to study about how God became man to restore us in our times of failure. So there you go. Today's message is brought to you by the letter R. Let's jump into God's Word today and discover how God restores us in our time of failure. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. This is what it says. This is, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make appropriation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Father God, we just come to you now and just ask God that you would reveal yourself through your word. Father, show us why it was so important that Jesus became man. And after all, I mean, I can say some words, God, but you need to be in them. You need to be working through them in order for them to take effect. And so, God, I just ask that you would just give us spiritual sight. Father, help us to hear the words that you speak to us and show us, Father, the important nature of Christ and how he can deliver us from sin. Restore us, Father, in our failures. Help us, Father, to see and to know. So this morning, God, I just ask that your word would examine our hearts and that, Father, you might show us what we need to do. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to understand the book of Hebrews, one of the greatest hurdles is to understand the people to which the author wrote, the audience, the original audience. You see, he was writing to a bunch of Hebrew Christians, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. These were people of Jewish descent that turned away from the practice of Judaism and, and, and daily religion and believed that Jesus was the answer for sin and that he was the Messiah. And so they surrendered to him as Lord. Now the problem, of course, is that the people they lived around made their lives a living hell for doing so. You know, their families abandoned them. They were constantly under persecution. Uh, many of them suffered. And after all of the suffering that they endured, they began to question 
whether or not they should turn back to Judaism. Kind of like how the Hebrews under Moses started to look favorably, favorably on the slavery of Egypt as opposed to the bitter nature of the wilderness with God. And so the author uses this letter to remind them of what Christ has accomplished for them. And so, uh, you know, how the life in, uh, in the wilderness with Christ is infinitely greater than the slavery of Judaism. And so in verse 16, we see him once again make reference to angels. You know, so far, we've learned that Jesus is infinitely superior to angels in so many ways. But here, you see, the author draws attention to the fact that God refused to help the fallen angels who followed Satan out of his presence. And so Jesus could have taken on angel flesh, but Scripture tells us he didn't do that. He took on human flesh. Now, 1 Peter 1.12 says that angels long to look at the gospel. In other words, the fallen angels are incredibly jealous of human beings, which I think explains why there is so much demonic activity. They cannot receive salvation, and so they attempt to destroy the entire human race. God chose not to help angels but to help the descendants of Abraham. And, and the, the means by which he chose to help mankind is by becoming one of them. In verse 17 it says, Therefore, since he became flesh, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make appropriation for the sins of the people. Now pay attention because there's a lot of things going on in this verse. First we see that God took on human flesh and that he became like man in all things. Once I was in class and an argument started about whether or not churches should hire pastors who didn't have children who were unmarried, uh, uh, you know, or not children that were unmarried, that they themselves were unmarried and didn't have any children. And one guy argued that he could not sit under a pastor who wasn't married and didn't have kids. Now this, of course, offended me because although I was married, Aaron and I at the time were desperately trying to have children. It's not that we didn't want kids, it's just that we couldn't have them. And we were unable to. And, you know, I, I love having kids around now because, to my point, I, I can blame them for why things get broken around the house. But, you know, at that time, he, he said that, and I just, man, it made me mad. I, 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 I chimed in. I was like, how could you say that? You're saying you couldn't sit under the Apostle Paul? or the Apostle Apollos, or even the Apostle John. You couldn't sit under Christ himself. And, of course, he had deflected the other arguments, and he said, well, you know, that was Jesus. Why do we tend to excuse the, G the things that Jesus did because he was God in flesh? I mean, do you understand that when Jesus was put into the situation of temptation or grief, it was as if you or I were dealing with that same situation as well? The big difference is that while we were tempted and failed, he succeeded. He overcame. Now, I'd like to talk about more, more about that in just a second, but let's just consider that before Jesus went to the cross, he had some kind of supernatural power that forced him to make the right decision, which, by the way, isn't biblical. But let's just say that was the case. Do you realize that there was a moment on the cross when God the Father turned away and completely left him alone in all of our sin? Now, at that moment, if it were me, I would have cursed God and asked, why did you do this to me? But in his grief and loneliness, Jesus instead asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, it sounds disrespectful, but it actually proves the author of Hebrews' point. Jesus was like us in all things. He didn't know why God had abandoned him on the cross, and yet in his confusion, he didn't cry out in sin. He simply asked for clarity. This verse says that, that he, in conquering his flesh, 
became the merciful and faithful high priest that we needed, for he made appropriation for our sins. Now, uh, high priest is, is one of the many titles Jesus holds, much like teacher, or savior, or lord. And the title priest carries um, connotations, just like all the other titles. You know, they, they explain the different aspects of who he is and what that means for us. Well, t- priest, it really uh, carries power in two ways. First, the priest was the one who mediated between God and man in religious practice in Judaism. Second, he was the holy one. You know, we, you see, he was holy, he was set apart from the rest of the people. Now, be careful here not to confuse pastor with priest, because there is a big difference between the two. See, in Judaism, priests made daily sacrifices for sin. They were set apart from the people. The high priest was responsible for going into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to confess the sins of all the people and to make sacrifices before the Lord. So a, a once-for-all, for that year, uh, payment for sin for all the people. And then they would have to make daily smaller you know, sacrifices outside the Holy Holies. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus became the high priest of Israel in order that the sacrifice might be made, not that year, but for all eternity. Look, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. It says, day after day, priests stand and perform their religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had uh, offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, talking, of course, about Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The one sacrifice that ended the need for all other sacrifice. Which means that the priesthood of mankind is over. You no longer need a mediator between you and God, which is why Jesus was crucified. You know, God tore the veil in the temple, the the object that separated the Holy of Holies where God resided from the rest of all mankind. Jesus made appropriation for the sins of mankind, which means he satisfied the punishment of God by taking all punishment upon himself. There is a major difference between a priest and a pastor. A priest is the mediator between you and God. The pastor is simply one just like you, who struggles with the same things that you struggle with, who is not set apart from you, but is set apart from the world, just like you are in Christ. Don't miss this next verse. Verse 18 says, For since he himself was tempted and that which he suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I once had a friend who said his co-worker was cheating on her husband. The feeling this was wrong, he approached her and said, Listen, what you're doing isn't right. And she responded, Are you married? And my friend said, Well, no. And she said, Then don't come talk to me about how what I'm doing is wrong when you don't know what it's like to live in a terrible marriage. Well, the question is, since Jesus was sinless... Can he really help me in my sin? The accusation is, Jesus, have you ever looked up in your sin and realized that you were an enemy with God? Well, then don't come talking to me about salvation. But but in that, 
Don't you see there is an excuse for our sin? I'm not a violator as much as I'm a victim of my own sinful nature. And Jesus, if you just knew what it was like to be a victim like me, well, you'd understand. Listen, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, when we read verses like that, when we attempt to dismiss it by saying, well, oh, well, you know, he, he, he couldn't, he could stand up under temptation because, you know, he was Jesus. He, he was God in flesh. I couldn't help it because I'm only human. And with this mentality, the question remains, how in the world could he ever relate to us in our sin and thus deliver us from it? But recognize the situation, what we needed was not another sinner to come put their arm around us and comfort us as we head to hell together. I mean, where's the good news in that? If Jesus had shared with us in our sin, he could not have been our high priest. He could not have made appropriation from our sin. He could not deliver us from the wrath of God. What we needed was not someone to share in our sin. What we needed was someone who was not only sinless, someone who raised above the temptation of sin. What we needed was someone who was sinless to make the payment for our sin. And it's important to keep in mind that in every way we are tempted. Jesus was tempted. He said, well, he doesn't understand. Think about it this way. When we give in to temptation, we haven't even felt the full weight of that temptation. I mean, Jesus consistently persevered through that temptation and always overcame it despite the full weight of it. So if anyone doesn't understand, it's us. And because he overcame that temptation, Scripture tells us he not only knows the way out of it, but he will come to the aid of those who are tempted those who cry out to him. So quickly, we, we dismiss our failure to obey God. And, you know, we often forget verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide a way of escape so that you are able to endure it. Two things about this verse, and then we'll conclude. First is that God, it doesn't say that God will not give you more than you can handle. That's the point. God gives you more than you can handle, so you turn to him. It says he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. Second, he, he provides a way of escape. Well, what is that escape? Whenever we are tempted, we must not excuse it. We must not submit to it. We must cry out to Jesus, and he will come to our aid. There's a better way to deal with our sin than to blame others and make excuses for ourselves. This doesn't provide any for, solution for, <coughs> for the problem of sin. Don't excuse your sin by saying, well, you know what, I am only human. Well, Jesus was fully human, and he didn't sin. And before we Christians dismiss this truth by saying, well, you know, he took upon himself the nature of man. He also had the nature of God. Keep in mind that we, once we have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are new creations and God lives in us. 
In order to clarify, let me share with you what I don't mean. What I don't mean is that we will ever become perfect in this life. You know, John Wesley, the father of the Methodist Church, believed that we could become perfect in this life. And while admitting that he himself wasn't perfect, he believed that he had met two men who were perfect, meaning that they no longer willfully sinned. And surely they sinned in the past, but they don't do it anymore. My dad used to always say, you know, if a man says he's without sin, just go talk to his wife and she'll set you straight. First John 1.8 says, if we, cl- if we claim to be without sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So even if we achieve perfection in this life, the moment that we acknowledge it, we become sinners again. Now, I'm not advocating a works-based salvation. I'm not saying that now that we're saved, we must hold on to our salvation by works. For if works cannot save us, they cannot keep us saved. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What I am saying is this. As followers of Christ, we must never fall into the trap of blaming others and excusing our own sin. We must not use excuses to justify ourselves and pretend that sin isn't really that big of a deal. We must not say, well, you know, God will forgive me. That is not being saved by grace. That is cheap grace, which is detestable to the Lord. Instead, we must recognize that when we fail, we are not only restored to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but also that Christ has given us the power to have victory over our sin. In our temptation, instead of giving into it, justifying it, excusing it, or taking upon ourselves a victim mentality, we must instead look to Christ. You know, the entire book of Hebrews can be summed up in these three words. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. In every page of Hebrews, this is what he's doing. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. So if you're lonely, look to Christ. If you're broken, look to Christ. If you're full of shame and regret, look to Christ. If you're being tempted and you need deliverance, look to Christ. Are you struggling in your faith, striving to understand? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Cry out to him. And Hebrews 2.18 tells us, He will come to your aid. Thanks so much for joining us in today's study. We'd like to remind you that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If you haven't already, be sure to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It is our mission to take root, grow, and bear fruit. So if you agree with us in our mission, let's get out there and bring God glory.